Um, yeah, I'm excited to introduce you to one of my friends, Austin Wadlow. You can come on up, dude. Uh, clap for Austin. Yeah. So, Austin is currently a salt company director in Ankeny, Iowa, but an exciting thing going on in his life is he is planning on, God willing, planning a church at Michigan State in 2019. So that's our next church plant coming up. Yeah, yeah. So here he is, the man, the myth, the legend, the church planner. Uh, we're we're going to break into Michigan for the first time. We got another Big Ten school coming up. I know some of you Minnesotans are excited that it's a non-Iowa church plant. Um, so yeah. Take it away, Austin. Sweet. Man, if I'd known uh, y'all were going to be going to a Taylor Swift concert next week, I would have said, hey, can I preach next week instead and come up early? Uh, it's, good to, it's good to be here. Um, it's, it's, it's really cool to, to come here because, um, so my wife and I moved up from Texas uh, about a year and a half ago to, to Des Moines, Ankeny, whatever, and uh, uh, it's, been, it's been fun to see this church going out to be planted. This is really one of the first ones that we've been able to actually watch from the beginning. And uh, as ones who are going to be planting a church ourselves, it's been super encouraging to watch the leadership here and just see what's happened. And I was standing in the back and whispered to Leslie, I was like, oh my gosh, if our church was at this point at the end of the summer, year one, I would probably poop my pants, which I don't know if I can say that in here, but I probably would with excitement because this is just incredible. It's not a good way to start coming to a new church to tell people I would poop my pants, but um, <laughs> I, it's just incredible what God's doing here and the leadership of Drew and Jordan and Isaac and Hannah and Kaylee and the whole team here is just incredible. So, um, But we are planting at Michigan State and East Lansing and uh, just really fast, I want to tell you really the two big reasons we're going there, why it's so strategic for us to go there and why you should be praying about the plant and praying for us and uh, as, as we get, get ready to go out there. Michigan State, similar to University of Minnesota, has 51,000 students. Um, then three and a half miles away, there's a community college of 20,000 students. So there's 70,000 students in the city, but it's also the capital city of Michigan. So you, you've got this hub for future leaders at the universities, but also a hub for current leaders. But then what even makes it more strategic than that is within an hour and a half radius of East Lansing, uh, there are 12 other targets for our network. And by targets, I mean there's 12 other universities that are 10,000 or more students within an hour and a half of East Lansing. Most of them are 20,000 or more. One of them is 45,000 students, and one of them is just across the border in Canada. Um, and so it's just a strategic place for us to go. And so be praying about that. Um, you know, it, it's crazy to even think, all right, as a network, like you guys just planted, and I'm saying, hey, pray about another plant. Um, but you're a part of something that is really unique uh, nationwide. Like there's not many movements like this happening. And so it's cool that we're already planting more churches. In fact, you know, last night or today, right now, actually, this moment, uh, uh, Lawrence, Kansas' church is launching. Uh, and then in a couple weeks, Wisconsin's launching. So it's cool to be a part of this. Um, and we get to keep adding to it next year. So enough of that. We are continuing the series on prayer this morning. And so I actually want to just take a minute and pray and ask God to speak into our hearts. And then we'll dig in. God, we, we come before you um, humbly asking that you would speak into our hearts. Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Um, the same way the disciples asked, Lord, would you, would you teach us what it looks like to communicate with you and how significant it is that we get to have this conversation with you, that we get to be in relationship with you. And, and so this morning, would you um, remove whatever distractions might be here externally or internally in our minds and our hearts? I know we got people coming in here from all all different uh, backgrounds, people who've come in here with, you know, ha having had great weeks, some people coming in with a lot weighing on them from a, from a bad week, or they know what's coming ahead. And so would you just remove those internal distractions and, and speak into our hearts and help us to hear what you want to say. And we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to say something. I want it to get in your heads. 
Prayer is to the church as fuel is to a fire. Prayer is to the church as fuel is to a fire. I want you to repeat after me. Prayer is to the church as fuel is to a fire. Prayer is to the church as fuel is to a fire. So, have you ever taken lighter fluid and thrown it on a fire before? What, what happens? I mean, it, yeah, it just, it just explodes. It, it blows up. Listen, prayer has the same impact on, on the church. Uh, maybe a better example, though, would be how you actually start a fire. How do you start a fire? Like, uh, my wife and I have been watching, like, old reruns of Survivor. And you see them out in the woods or out on the beach, and they're gathering all this tinder, you know, this, these tiny little pieces of leaves and grass and stuff. And, and, they, and they, you know, of course, they don't have a lighter, so they're trying to, you know, use friction of wood and whatever. But if you have a lighter, you get tinder, and you kind of make this little pile of it. You get a lighter, and you, and you light the tinder, and it, and it kind of starts to smoke, maybe a little bit of a flame. And then after that, you take some bigger twigs, and you, and you kind of do the whole teepee thing and build this teepee around it. But then what do you do? Because the, the fire doesn't just catch at that point. If, if you're going to really get it going, unless you're cheating using lighter fluid, you get down on your knees, right? And you start to blow on that little flame. And as you blow on that flame, it, it causes that flame to grow and grow and grow and catch the other twigs. And eventually you can put big logs on it, but you got to keep on in the beginning, getting down on your knees, getting close to the flame and blowing on it. And as a result, it, it's like fuel to the fire. It, it, it grows. The fire grows, it catches and it, and it spreads. Prayer, again, has the same effect on the church. A church that doesn't pray is at best a smoldering fire. It might not be dead yet, but it will be soon. But prayer doesn't just impact dying churches or unhealthy churches. Prayer impacts or affects healthy churches as well. And think about it like this. It doesn't take much for just a, a little fire to become an uncontrollable wildfire. Like you've seen uh, the news in California, these massive fires that are bringing in California a few years ago. So I, a few years ago, by few years, I mean like 15 years ago when I was still in college. So I grew up in Dallas. I went to school or went to college in Arkansas. So, you know, my education is super sketch. Um, but I was, I was, um, I think it was finals week or something, and there's this state park near my school, and so I, I took some books out to the park, because I'm like, all right, I got to, like, for real study and focus, so I went out to this park, found, a, found this, um, uh, this uh, picnic table, and uh, I put my books out, start studying. Well, as I'm studying, there's pine trees everywhere, and they start dropping little twigs and leaves on the table, and me, being a pyro, I always had a lighter in my pocket, and so I pull this lighter out, and I start kind of piling up the twigs, and I light them on fire, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. I got this little baby fire on my picnic table, which is a really bad idea in a state park or anywhere. Um, and so I kind of have this little fire going, and I start grabbing some other twigs that were on the table, and I start building this little fire, and I completely forget that I'm there to study, and I start getting up from the table and finding bigger twigs and throwing them on this uh, fire that I'm building on top of this picnic table in the state park. And I, I turn around, I get more twigs, and I throw it on top. And I turn around at one point, and I mean, at this point, the fire's still small, but enough tinder there, enough wood there to really catch. I turn around to go get like a for real piece of wood. And when I do, this gust of wind blows through. And when I turn back around, I, I, it had ignited the fire. And now I've got like this foot and a half flame on this picnic table. And I'm thinking, oh my God, like I kind of snap out of it. Like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? One, I'm supposed to be studying. Two, what am I doing? I'm building a fire on a picnic table in a state park. And so... I'm thinking, how am I going to put this thing out? Well, thankfully, there was like this trash can right here with one of those aluminum lids to it. So I grab the aluminum lid, and I throw it on top of this fire. And of course, smoke starts to billow out from under it. And of course, right as I do this, I look by, and there's cars driving by, slowing down, rolling down their window looking. So I sit down real fast, pull my book out, and just kind of start reading, you know, like nothing was happening. Of course, there's smoke billowing out from my table. Um, 
But if I hadn't really gotten that under control really fast, I mean, it could have been bad because I'm looking around. There's like dry leaves everywhere. And I mean, it could have been really bad. You know, Austin Wadlow burns, past, local pastor burns down State Park in Arkansas, or, you know, would have been bad. But my point is this. Prayer has this effect on a church. God doesn't want his church to be a smoldering fire. He doesn't even want his church to be a bonfire. God wants his church to be an uncontrollable wildfire. Luke 12, 49, Jesus says, I came to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already set ablaze. In other words, God doesn't want his church to be able to be contained by brick walls. God wants his church to be so contagiously set ablaze that everywhere its people go, everywhere you go, new little fires start popping up all over the place. But in order for that to be the case, there has to be something fueling it. And that's where I say again, prayer is to the church as fuel is to a fire. And so almost as a side note, I ask this question. What might happen at the University of Minnesota? 51,000 students. And what might happen here in the Twin Cities? I looked it up this morning. It's like 3.6 million people in the Twin Cities, greater metro population. What might happen in this area if this group of, I don't know how many people are in here this morning, but what might happen if this group became a group of people who is aggressively going after God, praying? Prayer is to the church as fuel is to a fire. What might happen at that campus? What might happen in this city if we were to be people who were aggressively praying? It makes me think of Acts 4.31. In Acts 4.31, it says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And the emphasis there is the word after, not before, but after they prayed, the place where their meeting was shaken. Maybe... You think about just our culture right now. I mean, you, you think about some things that are happening in our society. Maybe God hasn't shaken things up in a while here in our culture because God's people haven't gotten on their knees and earnestly asked him to do so in a while. Uh, an article was sent to me a while back, and it was about this movement that happened about uh, 100 years ago, or a little over, I guess, a lot over 100 years ago. It said this, it, it's been over 100 years since the last great move of God occurred in our nation. It was in 1857 and 1858 that a movement of prayer led to one million people becoming Christ followers from a population of only 30 million people in our nation. This movement of prayer was begun in New York City by a layperson named Jeremiah Lamphere. After failing to minister effectively to the immigrants in his church's neighborhood, Lamphere was moved to pray. At noon on September 23, 1857, in the Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street in New York City, Jeremiah Lamphere knelt alone. Before 1 p.m., six men joined him. Within a month, 100 men joined him daily. Soon, thousands of men began to pray each day at noon around New York City. And this resulted in 1 million Americans coming to Christ within a two-year span, as well as another 1 million converted to Christ in Great Britain and Ireland. The church was revived. And can I just tell you, like, here's why I think the American church hasn't seen a movement or a, or a revival in a long time. It's because when it comes to prayer, we've, we've become silent. Crickets can be heard chirping in prayer gatherings all across our country. They're silent, and they're silent because they're empty. You want to know the quickest way to clear out a room in a church, you call a prayer meeting. You know, we don't pray in our churches, honestly. I don't think we pray in our churches because we're afraid that if we do, people will stop showing up. You know, we, we, we think that the number one measurement of our success is how many people are in attendance at gatherings like this. And we think prayer kind of freaks people out. I mean, even as I'm talking about this, maybe this whole series has kind of had you on edge in your seat like, uh, this is kind of freaking me out a little bit. But the reality is the measurement of our success is not the number of people who have butts in these seats. The measure of our success is the number of lives that are being transformed by the gospel. 
And, and I can't transform a life by the gospel. Drew and Jordan and Isaac and the team here cannot transform a life by the gospel. You can't transform somebody's life through the gospel. Only God can do that. Only Jesus can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. We have so many gatherings across this country, large gatherings where we sing about Jesus and we talk about Jesus, but ironically, I think we fail to even invite Jesus. Prayer is to the church as fuel is to a fire, which leads perfectly into this series that you guys have been studying the past few weeks and that we're digging into again this morning. You've been looking at the Lord's Prayer. And in Matthew 6 verse 9, Jesus says, pray then just like this. And so the past few weeks, you've been looking at how he says to pray. And, 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 and you've read that. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And today, we see him say this. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And you, you know, just big picture stuff that we've seen so far. If we're going to pray like this, we've got to see ourselves rightly. That's how it starts. And what I mean by that is we've got to realize that we are sons of God. If you're in Christ, then God is your Father. That's who you're talking to, our Father. If we're going to pray like this, then we've got to see God rightly. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Like he is transcendently set apart from us, and he is transcendently holy in comparison to us. If we're going to pray like this, then we've got to be on mission with God. We've got to be wanting to be obedient to whatever his will is. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we're going to pray like this, then we've got to realize how dependent we are on God for all things. Give us this day our daily bread. And if we're going to pray like this, we've got to realize how badly we need God's forgiveness. And so then we get to verse 13 where he says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And let me just be really honest with you. As I've been studying this this week, I, I've... I've not been able to stop thinking about what Jesus says in Matthew 26, verse 41. And as I was studying this, it, it, it connected my mind to Matthew 26, 41, where Jesus says to his disciples, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he gets arrested and eventually thrown on these illegal trials and then crucified. And he wakes his disciples up and he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he says this, he says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And literally all week long, as I've been thinking about Matthew 6.13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This, this phrase that is so true, my spirit is willing, but my flesh is so weak, has been stuck in my head. And honestly, like being super real with you, I don't know that there's another scripture in the entire Bible that I think I can relate to more than this statement right here. I didn't realize this th until this week. But my spirit is willing, but my flesh is so weak. And there's two reasons that I say that I think I can relate to that more than any other scripture. Reason number one is this. There's nothing more true about me than this statement right here. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. Like there's so many things that deep down in my heart, like I want to be true about myself. There's so many things deep in my heart that I want to do. But when it comes down to it, I lose the battle to my flesh. It reminds me of what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, beginning verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Then you skip to verse 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, 
but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And he says, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Like, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're thinking as I'm saying this, but I don't, I don't know that there's anything more true about my heart than this. My spirit is willing but my flesh is so weak. That's the first reason that I relate so well to this text. The second is, I'm way too much like the disciples in Matthew 26 than I should be. When you think about the context in which Jesus says this to them in Matthew 26, pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. He, this was like the second time he was waking them up. He had them in the garden of Gethsemane. Peter, James, and John, he pulled them off to the side, said, pray with me, stay awake and pray with me while I go and pray by myself. He comes back first time, they're snoozing, they're asleep. They don't realize the dire situation that they were in. So he, he wakes them up, he goes away again, he comes back and he wakes them up a second time. And, and again, they're, they're sleeping, not realizing the significance of that moment. And I just feel like, man, instead of staying awake and crying out to God for help, I too often doze off to the dire situation that I am. So why is it important that we learn to pray like Matthew six thirteen? Why is it important that we learn to ask God to not lead us into temptation, but to deliver us from evil? There's three reasons I'm going to give you this morning. Reason number one is this. Our flesh is so weak. It's so important that we learn to pray this. God, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because one, our flesh is so weak. Listen, we give ourselves way too much credit. We've got to stop overestimating ourselves. When we overestimate ourselves, we get ourselves in a lot of trouble. Perfect example. In high school, I was trying to impress this girl, and she was working. She was an athlete, so we were all like working out in the weight room at, at, our, at our high school. And I was a total beanpole back then, so super scrawny. And I had never in my life on bench press had a 35-pound uh, plate on each side, which is like, I don't even know how much that is. It's not very much, like 195 maybe. And uh, I... I, was, I had already like done three sets of 10 of whatever on bench, right? And she shows up and I'm feeling all jacked and stuff. And I'm like, go ahead, throw, you know, put a 35 there, put a 35 there. And, uh, and, and I get down on the bench and, and she was right there. My wife hadn't heard the story. She's probably mad at me for telling this. Um, but I, I get on the bench and I, I get it off the rack. And I mean, immediately, it just goes right here on my neck. And there was nobody spotting me. So now I'm like, uh, you know, this is really bad. How am I going to get out of this situation? One, just to like save myself from death. Uh, but also, how am I going to get out of this like with this girl, you know, trying to act cool and stuff. And so finally I had to just be like, help, you know. And so she comes over and uh, <laughs> grabs the bar and helps me lift it up. One of the worst situations of my life, right? This is what happens when we overestimate ourselves. Uh, remember Matthew 26, 41. Uh, again, Jesus says, he says, he says, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Listen, the same is true when it comes to sin. When we overestimate our ability to go up against sin, we get ourselves into some really bad situations. Our, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. Again, Romans 7, Paul, he's saying, dude, I want to do good, but when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I mean, can anyone in here relate to those words? Like your, your, your heart, you want holiness. You know, you want purity. You want to be obedient to the Lord. 
But as much as you want it, you're, you're just too weak towards those things. I mean, for many of you, this is the story of your life. You're, you're caught in this brutal cycle of sin. And I don't know what that sin is. I mean, maybe it's pornography. You know, maybe for you unmarried couples in here, it's, it's you keep slipping up with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You're being sexually immoral. And maybe it's you keep falling for the trap of money. Maybe it's uh, alcohol. I don't know what it is. But my guess is what happens is, is you fall into that sin and, and you hate that sin. Like again, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Your heart doesn't want it, but you fall into it. So you give into it and, and you're so disgusted by it. Coming out of that sin, you're like, all right, I'm recommitting to never, ever, 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 ever do this again. And you come out of that feeling strong. You come out of that feeling so disgusted by the sin that you're confident that moving forward, you're never going to do that again. But then two days later, two weeks later, what happens? Your spirit is weak, or your, your, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak, and you end up falling right back into that sin again. And you're caught in this brutal cycle. You're just in and out of the same sins over and over and over. Listen, we've got to stop overestimating ourselves. Romans 3, 10, and 11 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. When it comes to fighting sin, we have nothing to bring to the table. This is why we have to learn to pray like this, because our flesh is so weak. That's the first reason. The second reason we've got to learn to pray like this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is because two, Satan is fierce. Satan is so fierce. It makes me think of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where, where Peter, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. In other words, he's saying, get on your knees and aggressively go after God, pray. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I mean, just get that image in your head. Uh, a few years ago, I was in Senegal, which is the westernmost country in Africa. And we were... Um, we were working with this, this tribe, this remote tribe called the Kenyagi people. And, and if you're familiar with Senegal, it's weird because there's another country that's actually in the middle of Senegal called Gambia, and it sits right on the Gambia River. And so we were actually close to Gambia, and we were right up on the Gambia River. And in Senegal, the top third of the country is in the Sahara Desert, so super hot super arid climate, but when you get around the river, it's like this oasis. And so there's, there's like jungle everywhere. There's animals everywhere. It was seriously a fascinating place to be because you see all these African animals that you see in the, at, the, at the zoo, but you're like in the wild with them. And at one point, uh, we're, we're hiking through the jungle and we come up on this, this bridge that's going over the Gambia River. It sat about 50 feet above the river. And, you know, just to put this in perspective, so in the river, like you can literally see hippos, and alligators, and then there's other animals drinking at the you know, banks of the river, which hippos, I mean, that's kind of crazy. It's one of the deadliest animals in Africa, right? So we get up on this bridge. Don't picture a bridge like you would picture probably here. Picture something from, I don't know, Indiana Jones or something like that. Like there were, there were two steel cables here and two steel cables down here, and then there were these, these wood planks going across the steel cables, and about every third plank was either missing or broken, right? Did not look like a safe bridge. And so right before we get up on this bridge, there's four of us. It was me, another guy who played uh, football in college, so a big dude, and then this missionary that we were with, and then our translator, our Senegalese translator. And I asked the Senegalese translator, I was like, hey, is this bridge safe? And he's like, oh yeah, it's safe. Go ahead. It's safe. And I'm thinking, all right, whatever, I'll trust him. And so the, the football guy 
who, you know, he's about my, my size, my height, but like, you know, larger than me, he played O-line. He, he starts walking across the bridge. So I immediately start to walk across the bridge too. And immediately as I set foot on the bridge, our translator starts screaming. He's like, hey, 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 hey. And I'm like, what? And I'm thinking maybe there's a snake or something. So I'm like jumping, freaking out, looking like an idiot. And he says, no, 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 bridge not safe. Bridge not safe. And I'm like, you literally just said this thing is safe. And he goes, only for one person. And I'm like, all right, that means the bridge is not safe. If only one of us can go across at a time. And so he starts to cross. So he says, no, no, wait for him to go across. So, so this guy, he crosses the bridge. And as he gets to the middle of the bridge, he stops and he's looking down at the, at the riverbank and he's, he yells back at us and he's like, dude, he's like, look. And there was a lion drinking from the river down below, which we weren't supposed to see any of those. Uh, there's a lion drinking from the river below and he yells at us. And when he yells at us, it spooked the lion. So the lion runs up into the bush on the side of the river that we're going to. And I'm like, all right, I'm out. We're going back. Like, we're going back home to Texas right now. And he said, no, no, we got to keep going. And so he crosses the bridge. Then I cross the bridge. And we end up washed. So the line disappears into the bush on the side that we were at. So the rest of this trip, we're, I'm, we're all walking thinking, dude, this lion is like totally stalking us right now. Like, he's probably in the bush somewhere, has a great view of us. We have no He's just going to pounce on us at any minute. And I throw that image to you because that's what, that's what the scripture is saying. 1 Peter 5, 8. Satan, our adversary, he's like, he's like this roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I was having a conversation with, with a guy uh, in, our, in our ministry, in our church, uh, last year, probably about eight or nine months ago. And he was just opening up to me about the fact that he'd really been struggling with suicidal thoughts. And, and I've had a lot of these conversations, but it was in this conversation as he was talking, it's like this light bulb went off from me. He's saying, man, I, I really, he's struggling with like wanting to kill himself. And it just hit me. It was like, oh my gosh, of course you're struggling with that. John 10, 10 says the thief, Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And it hit me. It was like, of course you're struggling with suicide. Satan wants you dead. And of course, so many people today are committing suicide. Of course, so many people today are struggling. Some of you in this room, you're struggling with like self-image worth like to, to the point you're like, man, should I even live any longer? And the reason you're struggling with that is because Satan literally wants you dead. He's roaring around. He's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for somebody just like you to devour. In the same way that we need to stop overestimating ourselves, we need to stop underestimating Satan. If it's, if it's you, like by yourself, going up against Satan, you're going to lose every time. You cannot defeat Satan. You cannot defeat sin. Lions don't fight fair, and neither does sin. You know, again, going back to Africa, different part of Africa this time, we were in Zimbabwe, and we were hiking to this village, and, and we were going through this tall grass, like imagine grass that's like this high, so you can't really even see over it, just like yellow grass. And they kept saying, all right, we've got to go through some more adrenaline grass, and uh, that's what this grass was. And so I'm thinking they're calling it adrenaline grass. Maybe that's because there's some chemical in it. When it rubs off on you, it spikes your adrenaline. I don't know. That's what I thought. So all like two weeks that we're there, we're walking through this adrenaline grass. And I was never getting an adrenaline rush. So finally, at the end of the trip, I was like, why do y'all call this adrenaline grass? And he goes, oh, it's because you have no clue what you're walking up on. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, you remember all the times that we stopped and saw like lion footprints, which we saw a lot of lion footprints? I was like, yeah. And he goes, he just kind of stands there like this. And it's like, oh, that's why you call it adrenaline grass. He's like, yeah, dude, because you don't know what's hiding in the grass. And I was like, we are idiots, man. Why were we doing that? And he's like, that's just what you got to do. He called it adrenaline grass because there's, he's like, dude, we probably walked past lions that are hiding in the grass and we didn't even know it. 
And, and, and that's how they hunt their prey. They, they hide in the grass. It's yellow grass. They're yellow animals. You can't see them. And they just pounce on somebody as they walk by. As they pounce on an animal as they walk by. That's how Satan works. Lions hide and sneak attack their prey. We might stand a chance against sin if it, if it like told us it was coming. Right? Like we might stand a chance against sin if it gave us a fair warning, but it doesn't. It hides, it waits, and it pounces when we least expect it. The point is, Satan is fierce. I mean, how many godly people have we seen lately just fall to sin? I mean, if you've paid attention to the news over the past even just couple weeks, one of the largest churches, leading churches in the country in Chicago, their lead pastor has and he's been removed from his position because he fell into sin. And I guarantee you, Matthew 26, 41 is true of him. His heart, his spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak. Listen, Satan is fierce. Just this past year, a pastor in Ankeny, not at our church, but another sister church in Ankeny, was removed from his position because of sin. My previous church in, in Dallas, so many marriages were falling apart because of sin. And it wasn't just the men. Like, there were multiple of those marriages were falling apart because the women were falling into sin, having affairs. We have to learn to pray like this. One, because our flesh is so weak. And two, because Satan is so fierce. And here's the third reason. Only God can rescue us. Our flesh is so weak. Satan is so fierce. And only God can rescue us. Listen, when we realize how weak our flesh is, and how fierce Satan is, we naturally realize how badly we need to be rescued, and only God can rescue us. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 13, pray, beg God to not lead you into temptation, but to deliver you from evil. This is why he says in Matthew 26, 41, pray so that you don't fall into temptation, because I know your spirit is willing, but your flesh is, is so weak. When we realize how weak our flesh is, and how Fear Satan is our natural instinctive response will be to cry out to God for help. You know, I was, I was doing a study a, a couple years ago. And in that study, I had never realized prior to that how often when the Bible's talking about prayer or describing people who were praying, I never realized how often it described those moments as people crying out to God. Like, have you ever realized how often the Bible says that we should cry out to God? Have you ever realized how often the Bible describes prayer as crying out or calling out or lifting your voices up to the Lord? The, the point that I'm making is I'm honestly not sure that we really understand how to pray. I mean, some, somehow, some way, prayer has been redefined for us as, as this almost, I don't know, mindless thing that we do before we eat a meal, you know? God bless this meal to the nourishment of our bodies. A amen. You know, you kind of have the pattern words that you say. We don't even think about what we're saying. Prayer's almost been diluted down to that. Prayer's almost been diluted down to this superstitious thing that we do right before we go to bed at night. You know, you got to pray before you go to sleep. Everybody does that, right? The Bible tells us to do that, right? Not really, I don't think. You know, it's like we've diluted prayer. Prayer's been redefined as something that, that we do for show when we're in groups like this. We pray these big, elegant wordy prayers where we use words that we never ever use in any other context, like, Lord, please bestow upon us this whatever, you know? Thy Father, I don't know. We use weird words. We, we've redefined prayer into this, this quiet to ourselves thing that we do in all those situations, or we've redefined prayer, prayer as to simply just a transition tool in a worship service. 
It's, it's what we use to transition between the, the band and the speaker and then back out of it. We're going to do it again here in a second. I'm going to pray. The band's going to ninja-like sneak up here on stage. That's our transition tool, which is ironic to me because of all the things that Jesus says his house should be like, he says it should be a house of prayer. Yet that's one of the things we do least collectively together in the church. When you look at what the Bible says about prayer, it, you almost have to question whether or not these things are, are really prayer at all. You should do a study on how often the Bible tells us to call out to the Lord. How often the Bible tells us to cry out to the Lord. How often the Bible tells us to lift our voices to the Lord. Do a study. See how often it tells us to do that or describes prayer as that. And then do another study. And how often does the Bible say to whisper to God? How often does the Bible say to pray silently in your heart to God? Does God know your thoughts? Absolutely. There's scripture to prove that. Does God hear you when you pray quietly in your heart to him? Absolutely. But how does he want you to pray? How does he tell you to pray? I mean, think about it like this. Why do you think it is that the Bible so often describes prayer as crying out? I mean, think about this from the least spiritual perspective that you can. Why do people cry out? People cry out because they're scared, right? People cry out because they're in pain. People cry out because they realize that they're in imminent danger. People cry out because their, their need is urgent. Also, crying out, it's instinctive. It's not something that you think, like, you don't sit there and think, hmm, I think I'm going to cry out right now. Ah! You don't do that. It's just an instinctive, natural response in the moment. And I think this is why the Bible so often describes prayer like this. Crying out is something that you do in desperation. And honestly, I'm not sure there is real prayer that's not desperate prayer. Crying out, it's a very humble action. It shows weakness. It shows fear. True prayer admits these things. So why don't we cry out? Why do we lack so much in this kind of prayer? And let me, let me tell you what I think it is. I think it's we don't cry out because we're not afraid. We don't feel danger, and we don't feel urgently in need. We don't cry out because we just assume that we're entitled to the eternal life that Jesus offers to us. We, we don't cry out because we've lost all perspective on how disgusting and how dangerous and how deadly our sin is. We've lost our perspective on our sin because we've traded in our God, like our real God who made us in his image, for a God that we've made in our own image. We don't cry out because we fail to see how weak we are in the flesh and how fierce Satan is. And so Matthew 6.13, Jesus says, pray and ask God to not lead us into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. He's telling us to cry out to him. He can and he will rescue us. So my wife and I, we have a, we have a three-month-old son. And the other day, I put him on the changing table because he had... Um, I'm going to say poop again. He had pooped his pants. So twice, actually three times in one sermon. Um, so he pooped his pants. And so I, I lay him down on the, on the table. And if you've ever changed a diaper like that, it's actually kind of terrifying. Um, and so I, as soon as I lay him down, I start to undo his diaper. He turns his head towards the wall. And we have like this letter J on the wall. Um, and then we have like some other things hanging on the wall. And I opened his diaper and saw it was there. And then he simultaneously turned and looked at the wall. When he looked at the wall, Whatever he saw, it freaked him out. Like, it was this face of horror, and it was really the saddest thing to see. So he just starts to scream and cry, and he looks at me like, Dad, save me. And he's got this big old pouty lip, and he's crying. And I'm like, 
dude, I don't know what you're crying out and freaked out about, but if you saw what I'm seeing right now, I think you would realize that I should be the one that's freaked out right now, not you, right? But in that moment, as he's screaming and he's crying and freaking out, like, I just had this instinctive response in me. I just wanted to grab him, which I didn't because the poopy diaper is open and stuff. But I wanted to grab him and just hold him and be like, dude, I got you. Like, you're okay. You're safe. I will get, I'll do whatever you want in this moment. Like, I will protect you, right? It makes me think of when Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, verses 10 through 13, he's, he's, he, he's coming right out of saying, you know, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open to you. And then he says, how many of you fathers, if your son asks you for, I think he says a piece of bread, how many of you fathers, if your son asks for a piece of bread, is going to give him a snake instead? I mean, just imagine how absurd that is, right? Like, hey, dad, can I have a piece of bread? Yeah, boom, snake, ha, sucker. Yeah. No father's going to do that. There's an obvious rhetorical answer of none of the fathers would do that. And he says, okay, so how many, how many of you fathers, if your son asks for an egg, is going to give him a scorpion instead? Which is worse, by the way. Like, how horrible of a dad would you have to be to do that? But Jesus is using this hyperbolic, like, question, rhetorical question to prove an obvious point. He, he then goes on, he says, okay, how much more then? He, he goes, if you then, though you're evil, so you fathers, even though you're evil, if you can give good gifts to your children, he says, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I think about, man, as much as like I wanted to rescue my son in that moment, how much more does my heavenly father not only want to rescue me, but how much more is he able to rescue me? I'm full of sin. My love is weak. My strength is not very strong. I couldn't even bench the bar with a 35 on each side. But God, his love, he's the originator of all love, and his, strong is, his strength is infinite. How much more than can he rescue us? We've got to learn to pray like this because our flesh is so weak. Satan is fierce. And the reality is only God can rescue us. So how do we close this out? Um, what's, what's the big takeaway? I just want to kind of like step away from this and speak to you. And I just want to say like, Let's be real for a second. Facades are stupid. So like, for a second, just put down the facade. Nobody's even going to notice that you're doing it. And let's just be real with where we're at. The reality is, like, sin is probably wreaking havoc in this room. Like earlier when I described that cycle of sin, like there's, there's a lot of people in here who are in that cycle of sin. And you're like, man, I'm not going to go back to that. But then two days later, two weeks later, you're right back in it. And it's because, yeah, maybe your heart is willing, but your flesh, listen, is so weak and Satan is so fierce. And if that's you, I want you to hear this. Like everybody in this room equally and desperately needs Jesus to rescue them from that sin. And there's two ways in which he rescues us. There's kind of like this macro level and then this micro level. And here's what I mean. The macro level, like God through Jesus, rescues us from the ultimate consequences of sin, which is hell. Eternal separation from him. Ephesians 2.1 says that you were dead in your sin. Ephesians 2.4 says, but God has made us alive through Christ Jesus. Through faith in Christ, we can ultimately be rescued from our sin and have this future hope of eternity. That's the big picture level way in which Jesus rescues us from our sin. But the second way that he rescues us from our sin is the micro level. It's the day-to-day level. And the reality is that like today and tomorrow and the next day, you can be rescued and delivered from your sin. John 10, 10, it says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But right after that, it says, Jesus is talking. He says, but I have come so that you may have life abundant. 
Jesus didn't come to just save you to some future hope. He came to save you right now to experience abundant life right now. He can rescue you and deliver you from the temptation. He can rescue you and deliver you from that constant, brutal cycle of sin that you're in. But you have to realize that your flesh is weak and you have to realize that Satan is fierce and you have to realize that only God is the one who can rescue you. And that's why we pray in Matthew 6.13. Lord, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Let me pray for us. Lord, most simply put, that's our prayer. Would you lead us not into temptation, but would you deliver us from evil? God, we know that our flesh is weak, and we know that Satan is fierce, and if it's just us versus him, we're going to lose every time, but we know that you are infinitely stronger than Satan and infinitely stronger than our flesh, and so we cry out to you, begging you, Lord, would you lead us not into temptation, and would you deliver us from evil? Break the cycles of sin in this room and set people free from the ultimate penalty of sin, which is death and hell. Only you can do that. And so we confess that right now and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.